You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. Visit walkingingrace.org media to learn how you can help these messages reach more people. Good morning. If you would please turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21. Matthew, chapter 21. This morning we come to the 23rd verse, and we're going to read to verse 27. Matthew, chapter 21. And we read beginning with verse 23. The Word of God says this, And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? They began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the crowd, for they all regard John as a prophet. And they answered Jesus and said, We do not know. He also said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's go to our God together in prayer. Lord, this morning we are so grateful for your steadfast, loving kindness toward us, your people. You have loved us. You have made us your own. You have delivered us rescued us, saved us, forgiven us of all of our sins, clothed us in perfect righteousness, stationed us in your grace. And we have discovered throughout the entirety of our Christian lives that you are sufficient for everything that we face, for everything that we encounter All that we need for life and for godliness we have in our Savior, your Son, our Lord, the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that you've put in our hands your living word, a book that is from heaven, given, preserved, entrusted to us. It is our food, it is our lamp, it shows us the way in which to walk, and every word is pure, every word is completely trustworthy, and it's powerful. It, it penetrates down to the level of the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. It shows us what is wrong with us, but it also brings healing in your hand and makes us what we desire to be now that you've saved us and conforms us to the image of your Son, your Spirit, taking your word in hand. He conforms us to the image of Jesus. Thank you for these things, Lord. And this morning as we turn our attention to these verses, would you be our teacher? As John already prayed, Lord, it is on our hearts to see people this morning who don't know your Son be reconciled to you. We pray for salvation. 
We pray for mercy upon them, just as you've had mercy upon us. But we gather each Lord's Day as your church, and we have needs this day. Your people have needs, and so, Lord, would you meet those needs through the proclamation of your word. May our eyes be fixed on Jesus today. May his glories shine forth as your word goes forth. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. There's a great day of humbling that is on its way. A day of judgment. A time when proud, sinful people will meet with supreme authority and perfect assessment. It won't matter who you were in this world. If you don't know Christ, the great white throne judgment is a day that you will never escape. The great ones of this earth, those who don't know Christ, with all of their imagined greatness, their puffed out chests, their worldly wisdom, in which they have imagined that they've escaped from the consequences of their corruption, all of it one day is going to meet with the one who knows it all and will hold them to account for it all. And on that same day, the small ones, the common people, people who have perhaps imagined that they are superior because of their commonness, because we don't belong to the ruling class, we must be better people. One day, those who have walked in the pride of their commonness will find out that their sins are no less consequential. And in the pride that they have walked in, they will discover they have been found guilty as they come face to face with supreme authority and perfect assessment. Revelation chapter 20 describes this scene, verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Human beings meeting with supreme authority and perfect assessment. When Jesus was on this earth, men were meeting with that authority. In fact, they were meeting with their future judge. He didn't come the first time to judge, he came to save, but they were meeting with the one who will one day judge all of their sins. And his presence on this earth represented an exposing power. The truth in bodily form exposed their false religion. Purity has this power, doesn't it? It, it exposes everything in the shadows, everything in the darkness. And men instinctively know that. When evil men want to continue in their sin, they know when they're in the presence of something different than them, something that exposes them, and they want to escape it. I mean, to this very day, when, when men or women are walking in sin, they run from light. They want to evade, they want to escape anything, any person who represents accountability for them. And so you see throughout the ministry of Jesus this desire to get rid of him, to get rid of him. And, and, it, and it continues throughout the entirety of his earthly ministry, but it reaches its climax in the final days that lead to the cross. 
And here you see that response in our verses when he is again in the temple. Jesus is teaching in the temple on Tuesday. This is the day following the cleansing of the temple. The religious leaders who did nothing the day before to stop him, no doubt a part of that is they're, they're shocked as he comes into the temple and turns their business upside down, driving out the money changers and the buyers and sellers of animals. They did nothing to stop them the day before, but now they've gathered a, a sense of, of nerve and they're going to, to, to confront him. They want to hold him accountable. They want to reassert their authority. And they want to do this in a way that entraps him. Not just hold him accountable, but in some way lay a foundation for getting rid of him. And front and center in this first encounter, because this, this encountering of Jesus actually runs all the way through chapter 21, chapter 22, chapter 23. When you get to chapter 24, we move to a new, a new scene. But there's a long series of teaching and questions and answers. But at the very beginning, at the, at the, at the very start, what is front and center is the question of authority. Verse 23, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? So this morning, we're going to think about meeting with divine authority. Meeting with divine authority. This is what they were meeting with. They didn't recognize it fully. They didn't acknowledge it. But they were meeting with God in human flesh. They were meeting with their judge. First thing I want you to see, a question about authority. A question about authority, verse 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? One of the amazing things about Jesus when he was here on the earth is how much freedom he was afforded by the people who would have never afforded anybody else that much freedom. The people who said he was not who he claimed to be, the people who sought to condemn him and kill him and get rid of him, yet you see it again and again where they afford him a kind of freedom that they wouldn't have given to anybody else and in that way sort of silently attest to the fact they know that what they're meeting with is something very unusual. This is not any normal person. Jesus had just attacked the nerve center of Jewish religious authority when he turned their temple business upside down just the day before, yet he's not arrested, is he? He's not arrested, and he walks right back into that temple the very next day, and he makes it his pulpit, makes that temple complex his classroom. He's teaching. In fact, Mark tells us he was walking around in the temple. Mark eleven twenty seven, and they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, most likely walking around the outer part of that temple, the porticos surrounding the court of the Gentiles. But he's, he's free to do it. Having just done what he did the, the day before, he's still free to walk around and he's teaching. But they decide it's time to confront him. Now, you, you find three categories of religious leaders described in the Gospels. Three categories, and there are subcategories. You have chief priests, scribes, and elders. And then within those ranks, you have Pharisees and Sadducees. Our verse tells us that the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him, verse 23. Who are these people? Well, the chief priests were the leading, the leading priests, members of the Sanhedrin made up of the high priest and other former high priests who were still living and influential priests who belonged to the Sanhedrin. These, these are the chief priests. 
the elders were heads of influential lay families, but also members of that ruling body in Israel called the Sanhedrin. The scribes, not mentioned in our text, they are mentioned in Mark. The scribes are legal experts, teachers of the law of God. The fact that you see in the gospel accounts these three categories sort of cycled, sometimes it's chief priests and elders, sometimes it's chief priests and scribes, sometimes all three appear together. The fact that you can cycle these men (laughs) testifies that though they had many disagreements among themselves, they were always able to come together in their opposition to Jesus. Jesus has a way of uniting people, doesn't he? Not just uniting his friends, but uniting his enemies. You see this on display even when it came to Herod and Pilate. Luke 23, 12 says, And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before they had been at enmity with each other. So when Pilate and Herod cooperate in their examination of Jesus, they become great friends when before they had been enemies. This is still true. Many, many variations when you consider the world's religions outside the truth, right outside of the only true religion, which is biblical Christianity. You have all these world religions, and they have, they have various things that are different when you consider each one, and yet they come together in their opposition to biblical Christianity, and in that way, in their opposition to Jesus. And what they all have in common is the belief that you can work your way to heaven. One way or another, you can work your way to heaven where the biblical gospel declares, no, you will perish if you try to work your way to heaven. There's only one way, one mediator between God and man. That's the man, the Lord Jesus Christ. In him and in him alone is spiritual life, everlasting life. But here they come, the chief priests and the elders, and they have a question, two questions, but really those two questions represent one question. By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you that authority? By what authority and who gave it to you? Those those two questions really amount to one question, and and we can state it this way. Who gave you this right? Who gave you this right? And that question is intended to do two things, to voice their opposition to him, it really amounts to an accusation. You have no right to do this. Who gave you this right is to say, you don't have a right to do the things you're doing. They voice their opposition. But the reason why it's put in the form of a question is it's also meant to incriminate. They know Jesus operates in a way that indicates authority. In fact, his teaching, as you know, was something that the crowds took note of because he taught as one having authority. He not only exercised the authority to teach, he taught in a way that imparted a sense of authority. And so, if we ask him by what authority he does this, and he explains himself, perhaps there will be more with which to accuse him Maybe he'll give us some ammunition. When they say these things, by what authority are you doing these things? It would certainly include what he's done the day before, cleansing the temple, but it's more than that. On what authority does Jesus teach what he teaches? On what authority does he do some of the things he dares to do? like healing people on the Sabbath or allowing his disciples to glean on the Sabbath or what he did just the day before, cleansing the temple. On what authority does he take these actions? This is a major issue for them, the question of authority. As the cleansing of the temple demonstrates, Judaism had largely become apostate The way they were practicing their religion did not accord with the Word of God, didn't didn't represent genuine faith in God. This is why Christ has just instructed His disciples with the lesson of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple about faith. This is where you find genuine salvation, where there's genuine faith. So it has degenerated into a kind of religion that is 
is man-centered. It's not, it's not focused on the true and living God. It's not submissive to the true and living God. Well, wherever you find that, you're going to find the, the ascendancy of tradition, a tradition that trumps truth. Now we're practicing not what the Bible says, but the traditions that have grown up around the Scriptures. And one part of this emphasis on tradition was human endorsement. Human endorsement. Organizational, educational, relational pedigree. Vitally important to these people. When they ask them about authority, they're saying something like this, which rabbinical school are you associated with? Who was the rabbi that was your primary teacher? Who was your mentor? Who among the religious authorities has endorsed you? This would have been very important to them. With whom are you associated? And of course, they knew and everyone knew Jesus had none of that. Jesus had none of that. That was not the explanation for his authority. It wasn't, it wasn't based on human endorsement. Jesus had already been clear with them about his authority just six months before during the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus had talked to them about his authority. John chapter 7 verse 14 says this about the middle of the feast. Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? He didn't go through the ordination process. Where did he get this from? Verse 16, so Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? This is why they're upset with him because he's healed on the Sabbath and Christ is pointing out their hypocrisy. He goes on to say, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? So, so one group of the crowd is saying, you have a demon, nobody's trying to kill you. The rest of the crowd acknowledges, oh yeah, they're trying to kill him. They're trying to kill him. And Jesus has told them, my authority comes from the one who sent me. And clearly what he's saying is, he comes from God. His authority is divine. And the crowds recognize this as well because the very next verse, John 7, verse 26, listen to this. Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? The crowd's recognizing what those authorities would never acknowledge, and that is they understand there is something very unique about Jesus, so much so that they afford him a kind of freedom they wouldn't afford anybody else. They're, they're afraid to do what they would normally do. Well, here they are again in our text saying, who gave you the right? Who gave you this authority? Where does your authority come from? 
This brings us to the second thing we see. That is how Jesus answers them. And he answers them with a question. So they have a question about authority. Now Jesus returns with a question about John's witness. Verse 24, And Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from him? Before we talk about my authority, let's talk about John's authority. His ministry, his message, which is summarized in the thought of his baptism, that, that which so was associated with John the Baptist, a baptism in which there was this declaration of the need for repentance and preparation because the Messiah is on the scene. Remember that message Jesus says to these leaders? Where did that come from? Did it come from heaven? Or was it just John? Was it just merely human? Was John a messenger of God? Was he delivering God's message to you? Or was he just out of his mind, just declaring something from himself? Tell me this, into verse 24, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. I'll answer you after you answer me. By the way, Christ's question to them actually answers their question. You want, you want an answer about my authority? It's found in your answer about John. If you rightly understand John, then you'll know where I came from because John told you who I am. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one who's coming after me, I'm not, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. He's greater than me. He was before me. The Son of God, the Son of Man, the, the Messiah, Israel's King, John points to the Lord Jesus and identifies him as that one. So if you can answer this question about John, you'll have your, your answer about me. What did John tell you? Was John speaking from heaven? If so, you know who I am. What do you say? Which brings us to the third thing we see in our text, and that is an answer from them that both avoids the truth and reveals the truth. Listen to their answer. Verse 25, the baptism of John was from what source, from heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the crowd, for they all regard John as a prophet. And they answered Jesus and said, we do not know. Tell me, how do you explain John's authority? From heaven or from men? Well, this sets them into a panic. There, there are things we see in Scripture that if they weren't so pathetic and tragic, they would be funny. And, and I think there's a reason why they are kind of funny because it's, it's actually, God, God reveals this in a way that sort of mocks them, which is what the Scripture says should be done. Psalm 2, 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. They deserve to be mocked. And here they are in this tragic, pathetic huddle. Let's huddle up. Let's think about how to answer this. And the Spirit of God takes us inside their huddle and lets us in on their reasoning. One day, the great white throne judgment is going to reveal that these men knew what they pretended not to know. 
They don't say we don't know because they didn't know. They said we do not know because they didn't want to believe the, the, the answer. You ever known someone like this? They, they, they say they don't know, but they really do know. They just don't want to come to grips with what they would have to come to grips with if they admitted that they know. So they deal with this question in a way that reveals both that they know the truth and in a way that reveals the truth about them. What's true about these men is that they don't operate in the fear of God. They, they meet with this question from Jesus. I mean, listen, on the same day he cleansed the temple, he heals lame people and blind people. And you're asking him about where this came from? And you say you don't even know where John's ministry came from? Here you are faced... I mean, any way you examine this, this is the weightiest question you could ever think about. Where did he come from, Jesus? But what is in their minds is not, is it true? It's not, hey, let's pray about this. Perhaps we've been terribly blind. No. No, what do you see? You see them strategizing. If we say this, this is what he's going to say. If we say that, this is what the crowd's going to think. What is missing? God. A view above the sun. What does God know to be true? Not just of John and Jesus, but of us. What does God know to be true? They don't operate in the fear of God. They're not concerned at all about what God knows. The knowledge of God is nowhere in their minds. The way they see a situation like this is a strategic battle of wits. It's us versus this one who threatens our influence, who threatens our authority. We've got to be rid of him. He exposes us. And it's us against him. And if we answer this way, here's what we're going to be trapped in. And if we answer that way, here's what we're going to be trapped in. So here they are in this, this great battle of wits. It's like chess making use of spiritual pieces. What a pathetic, tragic excuse for so-called spiritual leaders. And the reason why they don't think about God and the only reason why they think about what the people would think is because they love themselves. Their thought processes, this little huddle you're brought into by the Spirit of God, what it reveals is the only people they really care about in this whole situation, the only outcome they really care about in this whole situation is their own maintaining of influence. They love themselves. What are they avoiding? They're avoiding the plain truth about Jesus. They know this. Listen, they're giving voice. In one way, they have thought through the logical implications of everything they've witnessed through the ministry of Jesus and John because they're able to say... If we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? Which clearly indicates they had not believed John, right? In a, in a sense, the answer is already there. Because if they believed John's witness was from heaven, they would have followed what John said. So they understand if John's witness was from heaven... We should have believed him. Now, if you believe John, what does that produce regarding Jesus? It would have to produce faith, submission, allegiance, devotion, and it's not there. So clearly they don't believe that John's witness was from heaven. What are they avoiding? They're avoiding the truth about Jesus. 
But if they voice their verdict about John, if they just say it, they know they risk trouble from the crowds because the crowds believe John was a prophet. And in this way, they reveal the truth, truth about themselves. They are manipulative men. They are dishonest men. They won't state where they really stand. Side note, whenever you meet someone who says he's a man of God and he won't tell you what he believes, major red flag. Will he plainly state where he stands? And if it's like trying to grasp oil to get him on record, you have a false teacher. But it also reveals something else about them, doesn't it? If you don't know where John's witness came from, how can we trust you to tell us where Jesus' witness comes from? I mean, they're admitting an ignorance when they say, we don't know. Well, here's what you're telling us then. You, the spiritual shepherds of Israel, don't know, don't know whether John was from God or not. But you're trying to convince us that you know where Jesus is from. If you don't know where John is from, how are you going to know where Jesus is from? So even though they don't intend it, Jesus has now gotten them on record as to their incompetence and their ignorance. And if anybody's really pay, paying close attention, even on the fact of their insincerity, because they've already indicated by their behavior what their belief about John was and what their belief about Jesus was, they just don't want to say it. When people manage situations instead of simply aiming to please God, they reveal the same powerlessness and ignorance and untrustworthiness <clears throat> excuse me, of these men. Anybody listening to me today? This is what you do with whatever it is you're encountering. You're trying to manage it. Instead of just saying, God, what does your word say? And that's what I will do. I will trust you. I will believe you. I will obey you in this situation. It's not mine to manage. It's, it's up to me to obey you. That's it. In a very straightforward, plain, honest, transparent way. This is what I believe. This is why I've made the choices that I have. This is what the Word of God says. This is the standard I am striving to be submitted to. That's what marks genuine shepherds. These men, as you already know, are liars and thieves. As Jesus said of the temple, it's become a den of robbers. So they ask him a question about authority. He gives an answer that is a question about John's authority. They answer with a non-answer that reveals they're seeking to avoid what is unmistakable, and that is the truth. But unintentionally admitting the truth about themselves, which is they are disqualified as spiritual shepherds in Israel, and they are, they are ignorant as to who John was and who Jesus is. Which leads us to the final thing we see, verse 27. Jesus gives an answer that is fitting. Verse 27, and they answered Jesus and said, we do not know. He also said to them, neither will I tell you. By what authority I do these things? You ask me about authority, I've already told you. Told you just six months ago. I'm not going to tell you again. And so he gives them no answer. This is something that should sober us. The thought 
that sometimes God judges with silence. Sometimes an answer would mean giving dignity to something that doesn't deserve being dignified. Their question doesn't deserve to be dignified. So Jesus refuses to dignify it. It's not the only time he does this. Matthew 26, 59, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes. You know, a man so full of holy reverence that he's seeking false witnesses and violating every standard by which this council should have operated. Tears his robes and he says, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. This supernatural, really, freedom that Jesus was giving. You know, he walked in and out of their presence all the time. And they couldn't touch him until the day that he gave himself into their hands to lay down his life to deliver us. No man took his life. He laid it down. Matthew 27, verse 12, but when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Like a lamb, silent, led to the slaughter. But at the same time, the divine judge giving no answer where the answers were already obvious. Refusing to dignify what didn't deserve to be dignified. So let me finish by asking who in this room is trying to avoid the truth? Who in this room Maybe a friend has brought you this morning. Maybe a family member has brought you this morning. Maybe you're here out of sheer duty. It's expected of you in one way or another. But you have heard the gospel and you know the truth. And if you were to be honest with yourself, you know that it is truth. But you continue to plead ignorance. Well, I just don't know. Haven't made my mind up. I don't know what I think about that. And on and on you go. When the absolute true and honest answer is, you just don't want to know the truth because of what it would require of you. It's not that it's not plainly true in your own eyes and mind and heart. It's that you're trying to avoid it. Would you stop running? You understand you're running from your rescuer. You're running from life. I've thought about this sometimes when you see an animal wounded and there is its owner trying to get it to help it and it's running. And that's the human race. Because our God has a love for his creatures, infinitely superior 
to any love that the creature has for the creature. And there is God pleading with sinners throughout the Scriptures that your sins be as scarlet, they can be as white as wool. If you're thirsty, come. The waters of life are open to you, and, and there is humanity running from its only hope for the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. Is there somebody hearing me? You've been running. You've been trying to avoid the truth. And this extends beyond just the gospel offer because there are people in their sins dealing with the devastation that sin always brings. And there you are trying to blame anyone and everyone else instead of recognizing the bullseye is right on your back. It's not them. It's you. And the longer and harder you try to avoid the truth, we'll never change the truth. Would you stop blaming? Would you stop blame shifting? And would you acknowledge your sin with a broken heart and allow God to change you? Who in this room is avoiding the truth? Who in this room is trying to manage situations instead of obeying God? You keep running from one hardship to the next one, to the next one, to the next one, to the next one, all the while, you got it, you got it. You're going to manage it. You're a very poor manager. As it just keeps revealing that because of God's love for you, you're going to keep meeting with your powerlessness. What you need is not to manage a situation. What you need is to submit to God. I'm talking now to people who know the Lord. I'm not talking about to, to wicked people like we see in our verses who are trying to manage the situation because they have no God awareness and no fear of God. I'm talking to God's people. I mean, we should know better. We have bowed the knee to Jesus. We know the sufficiency of God and His Word. Yet there we are again trying to manage situations instead of just submit to Him and His Word. But maybe there is someone wicked in this room like these men were feigning, you're feigning reverence for God. You want to be viewed as someone who loves the Lord, but, but you're a, a manager of situations because you're really a stranger to the power of the Spirit of God. You don't know what it is to see the Lord's power do what you will never be able to do. Will you humble yourself before Jesus now? before you're humbled before him for forever? That great humbling day is on its way. It's on its way. And at the great white throne judgment, you will not be able to excuse your sins anymore. You'll not be able to explain them away and blame them on somebody else and justify them in one way or another that you think is a justification, but it's not. On that day, you're going to meet with divine authority, just like these men did, in a way that exposes you because it knows everything about you and that authority, the authority of God himself, the authority of Christ will assess you in a way that, that will close your mouth and you will have to, have to acknowledge your guilt. Would you humble yourself before Christ now and receive his mercy and grace and transforming power? Or will you wait till that day when he shuts your mouth because you refused him. Will you believe John's witness? Will you believe Christ's witness? Will you come to Jesus today trusting in him for the salvation of your soul? Will you submit to his yoke because it is easy and his burden is light? And you'll find life. Men meeting with divine authority, wanting to rid themselves of it, 
when it, if they had just repented, they would have found graciousness. Graciousness. May you run to Christ and know the grace of God. And the church would say, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this presentation of your son that represents an invitation to us. It puts the truth before us. We see who he is and we see how the world of men, including the world of lost religious men, tries to rid itself of the Son of God. And yet, Lord, even in this scene, we see that Jesus is the answer. And so I pray for anyone hearing me this day that's been trying to avoid the truth and strategizing in a way that would make them innocent and in some way the truth guilty. Lord, would you lead them by your kindness to the place of repentance, a genuine turning from their false thinking and their false choices to embrace the truth as it is in Christ. And would you save? We thank you that Jesus came from heaven to earth, born of a virgin, taking to himself a nature like ours to rescue us from our sins. We thank you that he lived for us and then died as our substitute on the cross, that he was raised from the dead three days later, that he's ascended into heaven, that he's coming again. He lives forevermore, able to save to the uttermost all who would come to him by faith. May you this day save someone who would come to your son by faith. And may we, your people, leave today full of joy, knowing the one who has rescued us. And may we leave committed to living our lives in a way that is transparent and honest. For Lord, any time we run from you, we run from our only help. We ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.